By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hi, welcome to another episode of Moody's Talks Muniland, the podcast about credit dynamics in U.S. public finance. I'm your host, Nick Samuels from Moody's U.S. public finance team in New York. Hospitals are in a financial vice that may be getting tighter. Labor costs, their largest expense, have surged amid a nursing shortage. Problems with insurance reimbursements and the number of available beds and the end of federal pandemic aid programs are squeezing revenue. And balance sheets have weakened. As a result, downgrades in the sector have proliferated. So, as COVID recedes, are healthcare's problems cyclical or are we at some more structural inflection point? To discuss, welcome to analysts Brad Spielman from San Francisco and Dan Steingart from Seattle. Brad and Dan, welcome to Muniland. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having us. All right, Dan, let's start with you. The financial upheaval in the hospital sector led us to a raft of downgrades in the fourth quarter last year. How come? Well, simply put, financials deteriorated, hospital financial performance deteriorated to a degree not seen in several decades and at a much more rapid pace than we or anyone anticipated. If you take a step back and think about where we were about a year ago now, winter of 22, at this point we were starting to come out of the big Omicron surge. But it had a major, major financial impact for hospitals. It, it, it really caused a lot of upheaval in the labor market for nurses and other medical staff and other people working in the hospital, which led to a lot of problems scheduling procedures, having enough people on hand to do regular work. And it really threw the expense structure of most hospitals upside down for for, for that quarter, for the quarter ended March 31st. But then the challenges that it created were both deeper and more widespread than anticipated at, when it was first underway in that quarter. And they really sort of continued not only throughout the year, but continued in many cases at an unrelenting pace. So while we were sort of holding back and waiting to see if hospitals could right-size operations. In the months subsequent to the Omicron surge, as we got closer to the end of the year, it became clear that many were going to have a much longer road to recovery, which resulted in a lot of downgrades. All right. So you mentioned labor. So Brad, let me ask you, as we record this, I read today that the unemployment rate is the lowest it's been since 1953. And labor accounts for hospital's largest expense, costs are going up. And since the pandemic started, maybe even before, hospitals have relied on expensive traveling nurses. And in some places, collective bargaining with nurses unions is leading higher salaries and benefits. Case in point, in New York, where I am recently, there was um, a big but short nurses strike. So are these cost drivers going to ease at all for hospitals or keep going? Well, that that is exactly the question, Nick. It's, it's how do hospitals get control of their expenses? Um, because as, as Dan mentioned, arguably probably the strongest driver of the weaker performance is the expense side. 
of organizations operating structure. And the biggest part of that, as you mentioned, is labor. Salary and benefits account for probably about 53% of an organization's expenses. So the question is, how does an organization bring the labor costs under control? The big driver of this is, as you suggested, is the shortage of labor, and that's impacted nurses very significantly and in a number of ways. So increased competition for nurses is increasing sort of the base cost structure, but also then the shortage of nurses is leading to a reliance, greater reliance on temporary nurses. And as you mentioned, you know, temporary nurses have always been more expensive, but in the last year, that cost has gone up very significantly, doubled or in some, some circumstances tripled. So you, so you have the cost of labor, they're going through the roof in some cases, and this is nurses, but also you know all positions, um, not only nurses, organizations are competing not only with each other, but, but also other industries. So the question is, how do organizations bring this under control? And are they going to be able to do that? We have seen data already that suggests that the rate of increase of expenses is declining, but we think at least in the next 12 months, not, not to the level that, that is going to allow hospitals to improve margins back to prior levels. All right. So then is there a difference at all between rural hospitals, urban hospitals, big academic centers? I live in an exurban area where one of the cost drivers that I know of for sure out here, I've heard it from the pediatrician, is that housing costs out here are really high, so it's really hard to attract nurses. And it's not just strictly speaking a nursing question, but you know, how differently are these different types of hospitals weathering turmoil in the healthcare sector? Uh, that, that's another great question is, can, can we make generalizations as to what, what types of hospitals are having more difficulties than others? All hospitals, generally speaking, are having troubles. I have a hard time thinking of a single hospital that's, you know, did better in 22 than they did in 21. So it's affecting everyone. But the, the, the way it's affecting organizations is very different. There's a lot of variability. We're seeing some hospitals producing actually negative operating cash flow, which is kind of catastrophic. And other organizations that, while doing you know maybe worse than the year prior, are, are, are still doing okay. So what's the driver of that? One, as you mentioned, might be rural-urban. Rural always has a difficulty maybe attracting nurses. But urban or hospitals are also having their struggles. I mean, they're having to compete with each other, as you suggest. They're, they're dealing with you know higher costs of living, pass on as higher salaries, competing more with other industries, as we talked about before. Quite frankly, we're seeing both urban and rural hospitals struggling. You can ask, oh, you know, maybe different types of hospitals, academic medical centers, academic medical centers are also struggling in their cases. They're, they maybe have less flexibility to provide fewer services or the types of services. They're, they're often the provider of last resort for certain kinds of procedures. And so they have less, less flexibility there. Maybe the one bright spot is children's hospitals. Children's hospitals have always done very well. So even if they're declining in performance, it's to a level that's still favorable. Plus, they benefit from things like philanthropy, have strong balance sheets. So many of our children's hospitals, in fact, are are, are are fairly stable. All right, Dan, let me turn back to you with an interesting question. When COVID first took hold, hospitals were hurt by this postponement of high margin elective procedures. And well reported here on Muniland, I was supposed to get a hernia repaired when the pandemic started. I couldn't, and now I just don't want to deal with it. So I've completely delayed it. But how much has COVID continued to weigh 
on hospitals' financial performance. Because one thing that I've not understood is this was a healthcare pandemic. You would think that hospitals would have done very well through this. Your, your remarks are interesting because I think you've touched on a couple of the key themes. What's happened over the last few years, both I think intentionally and maybe inadvertently. I'm, I'm sorry to hear about uh, your hernia. I'm actually in exactly the same boat. I also have an unrepaired hernia. So we can commiserate about uh, offline. But um, in all seriousness, when you think back to when the pandemic first started, there was a great amount of fear out there, right? People were, this is an unknown virus. People were really concerned about contracting it, what the treatment protocols would look like. So we shut hospitals down for everything but emergency services effectively, right? And the nice thing is the government, I think very, very wisely at the time, they paid hospitals for this. They flooded the industry with cash. They gave them loans. Effectively, they 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 gave them an advance on their Medicare payments for the next couple of years. So they, on average, it was around 30 days cash on hand. They just gave to hospitals and told them it was an interest-free loan. They actually, hospitals just repaid that this past September. And then the CARES Act gave grants to hospitals, rider relief funding. But you can quibble with maybe with some of the methodologies and the sort of black box nature of how the money was distributed, but they paid hospitals for not working, which they needed. And it equated over a multi-year period to about half of, of lost revenue uh, increased expenses. And actually the money is still flowing because uh, FEMA is reimbursing hospitals for some of these costs. So that was great. The industry, like many other industries, needed, I, I wouldn't even call it a bailout, that kind of sort of support in order to deal with a public health crisis. Um, but that money is has been used up. There's no more coming. And then you talked about your delayed procedure, your potentially indefinitely delayed procedure. I'm also in a potentially indefinitely delayed um, standing right now. And our delayed procedure is a hospital's opportunity cost lost revenue, or uh, in the case of a hernia, maybe it's a surgery center, I don't know. But you get my point. The type of healthcare that has been delivered has changed over this time period. There's a lot of people that have delayed care, which has interesting, interesting impacts because it's not just the delayed procedures for, you know, relatively minor things, but it's also all these people that delayed various types of checkups and preventative care are now showing up for later for for subsequent appointments or showing up at the hospital for something else that has been made worse. Their underlying condition has been exacerbated by not being treated. They're now in the hospital for a potentially longer period of time with medical complications. And now we're getting into some of the, the nuances and the weeds of how hospitals are reimbursed. But there's sort of a sweet spot for being for the amount of time that you're in a hospital where the hospital makes money putting aside sort of like very expensive procedures and you know very highly reimbursed services. But if you're a medical patient in the hospital, after a couple of days, the hospital's not getting any more reimbursement. So they're just incurring expense. And on the margin there, they, they can be losing money on you. This is a problem that has been exacerbated. Other COVID impacts that are coming to bear here are are the uh, the labor shortage that we're seeing across the country is hitting healthcare particularly hard. And there's all kinds of post-acute units. If you've ever had a family member that's been in the hospital, either for uh, maybe for a stroke or a hip replacement, whatever the case may be, they discharge them from the hospital, but they're not quite ready to go home, right? 
They go to a post-acute care setting where they stay for a week or maybe two weeks or three weeks, whatever the case may be. Those places are having trouble staffing up and they have uh, curtailed the number of beds available. When a hospital can't discharge someone to a safe environment, they don't just send them home. I mean, they have social responsibility to care for them, so they keep them in the hospital. They do their best to put them in a lower cost setting in the hospital, but space is at a premium and there's not always another place to put people. Again, the hospital is incurring more and more costs. Is it a direct COVID impact? You know, at this point, we're now probably talking about secondary and tertiary effects because this is sort of like the supply chain of moving people through the hospital and into post-acute settings and all these other issues around supply chain of labor and clinicians being available or not because they have to call out because they have COVID or a family member has COVID or they can't get childcare. All these cascading effects sort of gum up the system and the the person left holding the bag is effectively hospitals who are holding on to patients for longer than they otherwise would have. All right. So two points. One is I hope there's not a correlation between hernias and being a rating agency analyst. We'll have to explore that more deeply another time. But the second one, Dan, is what you talk about regarding the federal government. So let me ask Brad, because this also pulls in the sector that I work in, state governments, that early in the pandemic, the federal government provided fiscal relief to states by increasing the Medicaid sharing ratio, the so-called FMAP. But in return, told states you can't disenroll anyone from Medicaid while this public health emergency goes on, this so-called continuous care requirement. And now states are going to be able to start to redetermine Medicaid eligibility starting in April and maybe disenrolling people also. And the public health emergency is going to end in May. So how will fewer people covered by Medicaid and lower levels of reimbursement affect hospitals? Some more bad news, right? And so on top of everything that we're talking about, now now you have this happening. And and indeed, you know, Medicaid roles have been inflated. You know, folks that would normally roll off haven't rolled off. To tell you the truth, though, I mean, this, well, overall, it's negative for hospitals, probably not going to move the needle that much. Medicaid is already the, the lowest reimburser. So you, you have patients that already don't receive a lot of money for the care that's being provided, maybe potentially, you know, be, becoming uninsured, unreimbursed patients. You know, a bigger impact is a commercial pay patient becoming a Medicare patient, which which is also happening. So not great news, probably won't be the biggest issue that, that hospitals are facing. Okay. So one last question, and it's really for both of you. And I'm sure it's not as straightforward as it sounds, but is there any reason to think that the sector's prospects will improve at all over the next 12 months? I'll I'll go first. And that is the question of the day, right? Um, We do have a negative outlook on the sector. Overall, we are expecting for pressures to to remain on net negative for the next 12 months or so. But but are there bright spots? Are there reasons to think that things might get better? First, just to sort of enumerate more of the the negative spots, you know, as we've talked a lot about expenses, labor, Dan mentioned sort of the increase in length of stay, which is a big issue and also expensive. The revenue side is also being impacted, as we talked about. What we haven't mentioned are balance sheets. Balance sheets are also declining. Balance sheets are very important for hospitals, um, provides them buffers for, for exactly these kinds of situations. Expenses go up immediately, and revenues take a lot longer to sort of go up. It's not like 
your local coffee shop, like they can just increase the price the next day. It takes a long time to, to readjust the revenues. So in all this bad news, is there, is there any good news? You know, marginally is what I would say. I, I think things are going to remain pressured, but maybe less so than last year. So even despite the negative outlook, we are expecting sort of a modest increase in operating cash flow. You know, margins are going to remain suppressed versus historical levels, but maybe a little better um, than last year. And we, and we think, you know, one of the drivers of that is going to be organizations' abilities to better manage their labor costs. So there's reasons to think that temporary nurses, for example, are becoming less expensive. Hospitals' reliance on that is also decreasing as they improve efficiencies or bring nurses back that had gone to be travelers. So, so perhaps, you know, a, a little good news in the next 12 months. Dan, do you add anything to that? I'll, I'll provide a slightly more upbeat outlook. You know, the, the sun will rise again. There will be a point at which hospitals and the industry get through this. I mean, not to sound too cynical or dour about the whole thing, but, you know, 22 was a historically bad year. So I, I have to believe we're not going to repeat that level of operating losses going forward. I mean, hospitals are doing a lot to address the labor issues, as Brad noted. Something else just to, I think it's worth remembering, as labor becomes more expensive, any industry will look to for ways to reduce labor costs, including through automation and the use of technology. Now, you're not going to automate a nurse, but there are pilot programs and even more active use of telemonitoring, in some cases, AI and sort of predictive technology to help monitor patients better and effectively use, uh, sorry, fewer nurses per bed. And I think you're going to see continued development and experimentation with different models that, that effectively allow for that. Another thing to remember, one of the real challenges for hospitals, cost structure and their P&L, is the fact that while the labor market is dynamic and salaries, as we've seen, can increase really dramatically, really quickly, hospitals can't raise revenue in the same way. Aside from you know the issues of how many patients you might be able to see in a given day or procedures you can do, commercial insurance contracts that hospitals sign are typically anywhere from two, even sometimes up to five years, but two to three years is sort of the sweet spot. So, you know, when all of these issues arise in the course of one calendar year, unless you happen to be so lucky to, uh, you know, have uh, your major contract renewing at a point where you can really drive through some serious rate increases, you sort of, from the hospital side, have to absorb the increase in expenses uh, for a period of time before you can renew your contracts. Now, that said, we're hearing more and more contract uh, cycles are coming up for renewal and insurance companies themselves are ever so slightly more willing to look at some contracts mid-cycle. Now, I, I don't think many of them are doing that, and I don't think it's going to save the industry. But, you know, the longer this goes on, the more opportunity hospitals have to renegotiate the revenue side of things and to make adjustments on, on the expense side. We're hearing anecdotally just in the last month or two that labor rates uh, for Travel nurses are coming down to a level that is comparable with what a, what a hospital might pay its own staff for overtime. So they're starting to become indifferent towards the uh, the traveler expense. These are green shoots that that we're seeing in what is otherwise, as we learned yesterday, winter is going to be here for another six weeks or so. 
but we're starting to see those green shoots of spring. So I'm cautiously optimistic, as a financial prognosticator say, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll start to turn the corner. All right. Dan Steingart and Brad Spielman, thanks so much for joining us. That's all for now from Muniland. I'm Nick Samuels. Join us the second Thursday of every month. We'll talk with you then. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.